Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. So, second day, made it through. Maybe you're coming in for a landing. I I didn't want to set you up too much, but for some people, the second day can be even a bit more challenging than the first. (laughs) How many had a, 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 a challenging day today? Okay, well, that's... Not bad, okay. Getting better all the time. Um, really, it takes for three days. I give myself three days. I know you're going to say, Tamari's going to say, yeah, four days. Yeah. It, three, it takes three days. I get, this is what I do. I give myself three days to go through as much sleepiness and restlessness and uh, resistance as I do. Um, then if I still feel that, I'll give myself another day or two. Uh, but, what's that? And then it's over. And then it's, and then it's over, yeah. See it. That's all, folks. Um, but um, there is this um, something about giving yourself the space to go through whatever you go through is really the key. Uh, because it's not up to you what you go through. Uh, but maybe some of you are starting to uh, land a little bit more or notice a few more moments of mindfulness. And, and this is not a test. I won't ask who hasn't experienced that. But if you feel like you're starting to, uh, to land and maybe have a little bit more presence here, uh, just a show of hands. Okay, well, that's hopeful. Okay. And if you didn't, patience. That's the... The key. Sometimes it's said that the spiritual journey requires a um, a cup of wisdom, a barrel of love, and an ocean of patience. Mm. And if you can have the patience, then the other will follow because you're not working against yourself and and wishing things were different than they were. Um, this afternoon when uh, Jane led us in the, the gratitude uh, exploration, um, I f- sensed a, a kind of opening and softening uh, for many in the room. And uh, I hope that you could get a glimpse of uh, a, an open-heartedness, maybe as you reflected on somebody that you really appreciated or gratitude for where you are in your life, for all the blessings in your life. Uh, but what we're, we're doing, why we have this, um, uh, the way I put this sequence, uh, is that uh, gratitude, as she said, is, is a, I think, the most direct way to open up the heart. Uh, for many of us, it's, we just have to think of the blessings in our life and and there's a, a, an expansiveness and a feeling of gratitude. Yes? Is you, yeah. I feel when I'm in meditating in gratitude, I'm not being mindful of what's so. That's, you, you, there's two different levels of gratitude. There's a gratitude for the things in your life, but more and more it can be a gratitude for the appreciation you're learning, appreciation right in this moment. 
So it complements, one can lead to the other, and it can help to have a reflection on the blessings in your life as a way to soften and open the heart so you can be here more. And so you, it's not like you're going to spend 24 hours thinking about all the things that you're grateful for, but if your heart is feeling contracted, it can be very useful to just reflect on how, uh, what good fortune you have. And that softens it a bit, and you're a bit more able to be here in the present. But if I'm sitting there going through all these funny, wonderful experiences in my life, should I stay there uh, or, or go back to my breath? Uh, what's more valuable? Uh, what's more valuable? Uh, stay there to the point where you're starting to feel open and having enough uh, capacity to now be here for what's here. So it's not that you want to keep on going and thinking of everything that you're grateful for, but maybe five minutes of gratitude can be very helpful and supportive and then come into the moment. So what, what we're doing, and as I started to say, why uh, put gratitude after mindfulness and intention is that in that openness, we have more of a capacity to deal with, open up to, and skillfully meet all the difficulties in our life, which is what I want to talk about tonight, how opening to the hard stuff is an essential piece of this awakening to joy. One thing I'll say about gratitude that I, I love to share is... Um, as one teacher put it, it's like putting out your satellite dish. That if you think of all of the wholesome qualities as an expansion of the heart and the mind, and all of the um, challenging qualities, the, the qualities that, that are associated with suffering, all of those qualities like greed, hatred, and delusion, and and wanting and fear and judgment, they're all contracting qualities. And when you are in gratitude, you're saying yes to life, and you're saying thank you. And in that opening up that says thank you to life, then there's a chance for you to really take in all the goodness around you. If you're, remember you did that exercise about grumbling and complaining and writing things down, you perhaps felt a little bit of the contraction that's associated with that. And if that's how you're going through life, if that's your habit of life, that when you're in that mode of grumbling or complaining or seeing what's wrong, even if it's not grumbling or complaining, but just looking out for what's wrong, there's no room for all the, the blessings to get in. You're too contracted to even notice them or allow them in. But when you say thank you, that metaphor of the satellite dish being open, you're more able to notice and take in and receive all the blessings around you. There's a a line that um, I love from uh, Einstein. He says, there's two ways to go through this world. One is as if nothing is a miracle, and the other is as if everything is a miracle. It's your choice, but once you start seeing, my God, I'm alive. And Jane read that, that beautiful uh, meditation or reflection from Patricia Ellsberg for your eyes that can see and your uh, senses that can take in the world and a consciousness that can know it and a body that's working without you figuring anything out about it and a heart that can be touched and music and, uh, and beauty and sunsets and love. All of those things, you start taking a look and it's everywhere. And that in itself is a mindfulness practice to just see everything around you, especially in that, with that lens. Yeah. Um, 
the difference between gratitude and loving kindness, they're very closely associated. Uh, and mm, let me think for a moment. There is certainly an appreciation when you're experiencing metta. Um, you, can, you can feel grateful without necessarily, um, you can feel grateful to somebody without necessarily loving them, but there is that kind of affinity and connection. If you think of love as the connecting energy, yeah, then it's, it's imbued there. There's, there's just, it's, a, it's more of a quality of, um, in, in my mind anyway, as I, I haven't reflected much on this before, but as, it's, as you're asking at the top of my head, um, gratitude is a kind of mm, appreciation for what, you've, what you're receiving. And that doesn't necessarily have to be there with, with love, just a feeling of connection. Although, if you, if you think about it, you know, if you reflect on it, in a moment, you'll be grateful for somebody that you're loving. So I don't think you have to tease them out. You can just enjoy them both. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these, it's not, uh, even whatever one would read in a book, it, it comes down to more how it, how it lands for you, how it strikes you. So whatever is supportive of you, connecting with that open-heartedness. That's fine. So now that we're, we're looking at this next piece of opening up to the difficulties in life as a direct um, path and component of well-being and joy, uh, first I want to make it clear that it's not that you should start looking for the difficulties so you can practice them. As I, I remember one of my early retreats I went on uh, and I was, I was just there feeling my breath. I was actually quite connected with things, but everybody around me, it seemed, was going through boxes of tissues and you know, going through all these great catharses and, and you know, tears and you could feel the room just kind of melting in, in, in deep emotional depth anyway. And I, there I was just sitting and feeling my breath. And I, I went to Joseph, my teacher, and I said, you know, I don't know if I'm, am I doing it right? Or, you know, I actually thought, you know, Am I, am, I, am I getting my money's worth out of this? You know, what, what's, you know, what gives here? And should I be doing something wrong? And he uh, very wisely said, don't go looking for trouble. It will find you soon enough. <laughs> and he was right. Uh, because even when you land miraculously on the third day, or if you're doing a, a, a week-long retreat or a month-long retreat, it's not that you just get clearer and clearer and happier and happier. It's that you, the moments of mindfulness become more connected and stronger, but then you open up to all the stuff inside. So I don't want to uh, I, I don't want to mislead you in thinking, oh, okay, once you're once you're here, it's just going to be clear sailing. But there's this capacity to be with everything that comes up that's not normally there when there's not enough mindfulness. When, when there's not so much mindfulness, we just get confused and lost in our, our thoughts and our stories. Here you can see that you're having the stories, but still they touch deep places inside that need to be understood and held wisely. And that's a very essential part of the process. The Buddha, remember, started off his teaching with the very first truth, there is suffering in life. There's no getting around that. And this is not about just pasting a smiley smile on your face and saying, are, are we happy yet? It's opening up to the whole show. 
he said, I teach about suffering and the end of suffering. And the more one understands the nature of suffering, it turns out that that is the very way to move through the suffering to the end of suffering. But if you're busy trying to avoid at all costs feeling your pain or feeling the, the sorrows or the sadness, it's going to be a 24-7, 365 endeavor and you will not be successful because everything that arises passes no matter how good you might have it or your experience is, that will pass. The body is subject to, uh, to change. Even when you get what you want finally and then you realize it didn't quite do it for you, there's suffering there, there's unsatisfactoriness there. So he said, take a look Ooh, sorry about that. Take a look and understand, don't be afraid to connect with the sorrow and the pain and the suffering. That's part of the human experience because in that you find a strength and a courage and a wisdom that you didn't know you had. And all the great masters endured suffering and sorrow. The Buddha went through a a six-year period of intense austerities, so much so that just, just before he was enlightened, he was all alone, all of his friends had, had, had left him, and he said, the only thing I could do now is just sit under that tree and I'm either going to become enlightened or die. Can you imagine coming into the hall with that, that <laughs> determination? Okay, enlightenment or bust, you know. Fortunately for him, he maybe had some premonition and he became awakened. And even before, just before he became awakened, there was Mara, the embodiment of confusion and, and evil in, in the teachings, uh, throwing, uh, throwing seduction into him, into his, his mind. And he said, no, I'm not going for it. Throwing, uh, shooting arrows. It's said that the, the Buddha uh, in metaphorically put his hand up and the arrows would turn to flowers, but he was besieged by, by attacking the attacks in his mind, whether you think of Mara as outside or inside. And then finally doubt, where he, uh, he was, uh, Mara says, what, what makes you think you have the right to sit here and become enlightened? The ultimate doubt, who do you think you are anyway? And the Buddha, in that famous gesture, touches the earth and says, as the earth has witnessed all the lifetimes of, of my work, I have a right to become enlightened. And that's, then he was free. But interestingly enough, by the way, uh, even after he was enlightened, there is a number of discourses in the Pali Canon where Mara comes and visits the Buddha even after he's enlightened. And Mara says, there's about 25 of these uh, Mara, uh, Mara short vignettes. Mara can come in and say, you call yourself a renunciate, an ascetic? You're sleeping four hours a night. What kind of a wimp do you think you are? You know, trying to kind of knock him off his seat. And each time the Buddha says, I see you, Mara. It's like, oh, I see. This is just the mind throwing up some confusing thought. I see you, Mara. And then Mara slinks away, like, you know, curses foiled again. But Mara would come to visit the Buddha even after he is enlightened. So if you find Mara visiting you, um, cut yourself a little slack. But Mara, uh, the Buddha had to go through his own trials. Jesus certainly 
there he is on the cross saying, why hast thou forsaken me? Just before he's completely free. Mohammed certainly went through his very intense uh, trials. And it's part of the hero's journey to go through those trials. If you're familiar with Joseph Campbell's uh, beautiful depiction of the archetype hero or heroine, they set out on a quest, they go through tremendous hardship, they um, meet their demons, their most uh, intense fears, and somehow overcome them to victory or freedom. So it's right there in the archetype of a hero that one has to sooner or later conf confront one's challenges. And in this depiction of the um, progress of insight, it's sometimes called, in this model of development, even after you have a very um, profound understandings, there are times later on in practice that one goes through uh, fear and, and uh, loathing and disgust for the way things are, and then an urge for deliverance leading to high equanimity and then freedom. Um, so it's not that it just gets better and better, but you're learning skills to deal with anything that comes up. That's the beauty. What you're doing right here, right now, don't underestimate it. If you're having a challenging time, you are learning how to open up and realize you can survive challenging times. And there's nothing like that to give you confidence and faith. There's a, a sense of being humbled, but in that humble, uh, being humbled, there's a humility that you let go of, of thinking that you've got any control, that you never had control in the first place, and it opens you up to see, oh yes, this is workable as well. There's a great teaching from uh, Trungpa Rinpoche uh, of the, the classic phrase, the lion's roar, that you find that everything is workable, everything Every circumstance is workable. And then it doesn't matter what comes, but actually, once you have that sense that you have that capacity, then you're ready to deal with anything in life. Then fear is not running you. And there's more sense of confidence that you can trust that the awareness will meet the moment. Mm -hmm. When I think of the people who are the true embodiments of joy, two people come to mind who've always inspired me, the Dalai Lama uh, and uh, Desmond Tutu, Archbishop Desmond Tutu. Two pretty amazing, joyful beings. They have both seen incredible suffering in their, in their life. And not all, personally, they haven't uh, necessarily gone through physical suffering, but they've seen their countries ravaged by conflict and people coming to them, thousands of people coming to them and saying, this happened to me, I was tortured here, or I lost all my family and, and, and the Dalai Lama, his country, exiled, and yet, having encountered so much suffering, and the same with Desmond Tutu, there is this incredible joy that they have. And I've seen the Dalai Lama cry and weep upon hearing somebody's sadnesses and, um, and, and tragic stories, and then 10 minutes later be laughing and giggling. It's not that he doesn't feel the first, it's just that he and, and Tutu also, who was the, the architect of the 
um, reconciliation, the most successful reconciliation council after apartheid was, uh, was ended in South Africa, um, who saw tremendous hardship. They let that sadness and that pain be felt fully, they don't flinch, and it moves through, and then they open up to the next thing. It's truly remarkable, and it's something to just keep in mind the, the capaci capacity and potential of us to, to do that. The Buddha said, uh, not only to be willing to open up to the suffering and the sorrow that's here, but actually to reflect on it regularly. He said in one very powerful teaching, reflect on these things every day. I will become old if you live that long. I will become sick. I will die. And everything and everyone near and dear to me, I will be separated from. Then the fifth reflection is about karma, that my, I create my karma through my own actions. But those first four to reflect, those are the, the daily reflections on the nature to become old, become sick, I will die, and everything and everyone near and dear to me I will be separated from. He says, think about this every day. Now, you might think, gosh, that's a very depressing kind of practice. Who wants to go there? But he's actually saying, he's not saying it to be morbid or bum you out. He's saying, this is the way things are, and the more you come directly in touch with it, the less frightened and confused you'll be when those things happen. It's not a mistake. It's inherent in the fabric of life. Now, he also says, cultivate states of well-being. And when they're here, do not miss them. Remember, he says, go for the highest happiness, but not to get caught in thinking, oh, it's in this thing or that thing, or this relationship that will always be here. While it's here, you want to appreciate it fully for what it is, but when it's not, this is the way things are. Just like that, uh, the teaching by Jesus, do not lay your treasures up where Moth and dust doth corrupt. Same idea. But you want to be here for it when it's here. Mm. So it's not if the hard stuff comes, it's when it comes, how to deal with it. Mm. I um, have a, a, a friend and colleague, Rodney Smith, he teaches up in, in Seattle. And uh, he used to run a hospice for a number of years. And he told me this story, which I included in, in the book, Awakening Joy, about this 97-year-old uh, woman who, upon hearing that she uh, had a terminal illness, her response was, why me? <laughs> And she said it with, you know, real frustration and, and the unfairness of it all. Why me? 97. Yeah. My mom uh, just passed away a few months ago, and she was 94. And um, she was pretty amazing, had a real turnaround later on in her life, and uh, uh, and opened up to gratitude and how blessed she was. And uh, I, I didn't share the, the, the story. I thought of, of doing it when Grant, Jane was talking about gratitude. It's, it's in the book. But she took on a gratitude practice in the last few years from being 
a tremendous complainer. And, and actually, many people may have, how many people have seen her on, on YouTube? If you, um, my mom is a YouTube star. If you go to um, Confessions of a Jewish Mother, and the subtitle is How My Son Ruined My Life. Right? It's up to like 225,000 views, because she's very, very funny. And she, from being a kvetch, as it's said in, in, in Jewish, in Yiddish, from being a complainer, a kvetch, to seeing how blessed her life is, and her ongoing comment, the last five years of her life, I'm so blessed, we're so blessed. And her last words that I read at her memorial service were, what an incredible run it's been. How, how blessed I've been. Blessed. It's such a small word, but it means everything. This is from somebody who complained for the first 89 years of her life. <laughs> and she knew it, too. And why I ruined her life was because she was happy being a kvetch. And then when she realized that she had nothing to complain or kvetch about. I took away that pleasure from her, but she says, as she does in, in, the, in the YouTube, she says, I, I hate to admit it, but I'm, I'm really happier. <laughs> it's very funny. So how we relate to even the fact that death is here makes all the difference in our life. Mm. And the Buddha said, actually, in one of, one of his beautiful teachings called Transcendental Dependent Arising, if you want to impress your friends, you can throw that around. Uh, and it's a beautiful treatise on, on this teaching. He says, you know, the Buddha had, and in this teaching, there's loads of lists, right? And this list starts out, suffering can be the causative factor for faith to arise. Faith can lead to gladness. Gladness can lead to joy. Joy to happiness and contentment, can lead to peace and equanimity, can lead to the highest stages of freedom. But it starts out with suffering. Suffer suffering can, not necessarily, but can lead to faith. And then up the, the ladder. Now let me ask you, how many people here have found that going through, no, I'll put it this way. How many people here have come to um, looking for answers and spiritual uh, uh, teachings and practices out of their suffering in their life? Okay, look around. This is how it works. Okay, you can put your hands down. You might say, how can that be? You know, suffering leading to faith? Well, suffering kind of shakes you out of your complacency and realize, makes you realize you don't have control and makes you want to see well, what's it mean? What's the meaning anyway? You know, if you're old enough to remember a movie, what's it all about, Alfie? Yeah. What's the, how can I find meaning in this? And suffering is, is a great wake-up call for that, especially when you get to the point where you say, I give up. You ever get to that point where it's, you've just hit the bottom and you just say, I give up. I can't figure it out anymore. A very powerful place to get to because when you give up, when the I gives up, it's another way of saying this ego is surrendering the control that it never had. Let me see. Let me understand. This is from uh, 
uh, Sri Aurobindo's uh, alter ego, the mother. Uh, she was known as the mother, a very wise being uh, who lived in, uh, in India with him in, uh, in Pondicherry. And she says, you carry in yourself all the obstacles necessary to make your realization perfect. Always you will see that within you, the shadow and the light are equal. If you discover a very black hole, a thick shadow, be sure there is somewhere in you a great light. It is up to you to know how to use the one to realize the other. Now, I just invite you for a moment to think of, Mike, close your eyes, reflect on this. Think of a challenging situation or a difficult period in your life that you've been through. One that you've gotten through. And reflecting back on having gotten through it, what lessons did you learn by going through that experience? How did it help you grow in, in some way? without going into the, the details of the, of the experience, just the pithy teaching that you learned from your suffering or sorrow or challenges. What lesson did you learn? You're more than just a physical being. Great, thank you. you know, before we go on, it's a little cool. Could you um, close the, some of the windows? Thanks, Aaron. Anybody else? Yeah, Rob. Compassion. Compassion. That's one of the, the main gifts in suffering and sorrow. Thank you. Anything else? Yeah. Say again. Ah, that life doesn't end. When her mom died, she was... Tri- it, oh, life does end. Oh, okay, I thought you were going beyond that. That life ends. Yes, okay. That there is... That's part of the deal. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yes. You just, it's not less ethereal. It's, it's really powerful. She discovered she can get through things. Yeah. One of the great gifts. Yeah, yeah I, I had a similar one that I could trust my intuition and that I was very strong, mm. way stronger than I thought. Mm, beautiful, way stronger than I thought. You can always begin again. Uh, always begin again. You can always begin again. Beautiful, too. Don't take things too seriously, and a sense of humor makes a big difference. Right. Thank you. And Jason? We are very resilient beings. Uh, we are resilient beings. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Now, if somebody said, hey, listen, are you ready for a lesson? You, know, you probably would have said, uh, no thanks, could you give it to somebody else? Yeah. But that's not how it works because you wouldn't have known those things if you didn't go through them. Isn't that so? So as much as we would like to avoid, if you know somebody who's never known any hardship in their life, first of all, introduce me if you, if you do. 
But if somebody has lived in that much of an ivory tower, then they haven't really experienced the depths of life, which is what drove the Buddha to go on his quest in the first place. He is, as probably you well know, his father setting up his, his life to have an ideal, pleasure-filled life so he'd never go on a spiritual quest, although he did, uh, didn't have his mom. His mom died in, uh, in childbirth or shortly after uh, giving birth, uh, although his aunt raised him. But he had a, a, a perfect, idyllic life and he realized that he was in this complete cocoon, ivory tower, when he saw old age, sickness, and death, and that woke him up. Those are the messengers to wake him up. Oh my goodness, let's find out what life is really about. So there's the external kind of suffering that we deal with, all of the tragedies that happen and um, uh, losses that we, that we have to understand and integrate and um, health issues and things that, that go on outside or disasters, things like that. And how to work with those without being overwhelmed with them. And then there's the internal suffering that we have, which is our own demons that we carry within us or the reactions that we have to the external suffering. Like, this shouldn't be happening or I can't believe I'm stuck here again. This is what in the teaching is called the second dart on top of the first or the second arrow in this um, very poignant teaching. The first dart or the first arrow is the pain that we might feel. And then the second dart is, oh, I can't stand that I'm stuck in this pain or that I'm stuck in this sadness or being angry about your anger or frightened about your fear. That's adding the second dart on top of the first one. So, some aspects of working with our challenges and, and difficulties. Um, and also, uh, first, coming to grips with the way things are. I think I, before I go on to working with things, I want to share with you a couple of pieces. Let's see if I have it. This is uh, Khalil Gibran. Your joy is your sorrow unmasked. And the self-same well from which your laughter rises was oftentimes filled with your tears. And how else can it be? The deeper that sorrow carves into your being, the more joy you can contain because there's a deepening, a depth, an understanding that comes when we allow ourselves to feel what's here. So this is one of the, the first and probably most important understandings as we practice here and go through these days and in your own practice in your life that as much as we would like to avoid the sorrows and the sufferings, the more we run away from them and try not to feel them, the more they're there. It's like the old uh, famous line, try not to think about a pink elephant right now. And the more you try to get it out of your mind, there it is. And the more you're frightened by your pain or your sorrow, the more um, it's your demon that you're fighting. So one 
key understanding is to come directly into contact and let mindfulness touch your pain. Not that it's going to take it all away, but you're not adding that second dart on top of the first. And more and more, as Evelyn and others were saying, I didn't realize there was a strength that was there. There was a capacity to be with it. Most of the time when we're afraid of something, the fear is much worse than the actual experience. Have you noticed that? You you can have these demons, oh no, I can't go there, I can't go there, and then there's no way out. You say, oh, I went there, it was okay. Or it was really hard and I survived. Wow. So to be willing to move right into it and touch it with mindfulness, which is going to be the next instruction that we do tomorrow, uh, is a profound transformation. And the, the, there's an acronym that describes this process, and we'll, we'll go through uh, the experience uh, tomorrow at some point. But the word RAIN can be a very helpful reminder of how to go through this process. The R is recognize. What am I feeling right now? Instead of, I don't want to go there, what is this that I'm feeling? Oh, this is fear, or this is sadness, or this is confusion. And when you name it, just in the naming it, you're not getting as swept up by it. And in fact, on a, on a brain, on a neuroscience level, when you move to naming your experience, to labeling your experience, you're moving from, the, uh, from activating the limbic part of the brain that is, um, uh, activates the emotions to the neocortex that says, oh, that's what's happening. Oh, a meltdown, that's what's going on. <laughs> and you're not in the middle of it. So just on a very practical level, you're jumping to a more spacious understanding of it. So recognize, allow or accept, like Liz was talking about today about acceptance, allowing or accepting what's here instead of fighting it, then you're you're not adding on that resistance to the experience. And then the third, the I, is investigate or bring an interest to it, which means not analyze it, but explore how does this feel? How does this sorrow or fear or anger or wanting or loneliness, how does it feel in the body? What's the energy of it? Oh, it's, there's a tightness in the chest or there's a heaviness in the in the belly, or there's a, a, a confusion and agitation in the mind. Oh, check it out. You know, like I was saying before about being Sherlock Holmes with a, a magnifying glass. Oh, this is what it feels like. And while you're doing that, you can't be saying, oh, let's check it out. Let's really feel this at the same time. Oh, I hope it goes away. So you're you're eliminating that kind of aversion element to it. So recognize, allow, investigate. And the N is non-identification, which is uh, a fancy word that means not taking it personally. That is not thinking, oh, I'm such a, you know, pathetic person for having this fear or loneliness, or um, this is who I really am, just a a fearful, just a ball of fear. That's a misunderstanding. And when you are not taking it personally, you're seeing, oh, this is part of being human. Oh, this is fear. 
or this is sadness. And there's an awareness that's knowing it. And the awareness, the awareness of fear is not afraid. The awareness of sadness is not sad. The awareness can hold anything and the fear or the sadness or whatever the the feelings or the difficulties are doing their dance within that field of awareness. So we'll go through this tomorrow in the instructions and uh, maybe in the afternoon we'll see how things are flowing. But just to know that feeling your feelings, even the scariest ones, that's the way to transform them. Not that you've got to stay there for an hour and say, oh my God, you know, I'll go in there and one of us is going to come out alive, you know, me and, me and my fear. Uh, but even just a little at a time, you know, what I, I think I mentioned it here earlier, titrating our dukkha. You just touch it a little at a time. Oh yeah, okay, and then when it feels like it's too much, ah, okay, take a break and then touch it again. But the more you get the knack of seeing, oh, I can be with this, the the more confidence you have. Another thing to keep in mind as we open up to our (laughs) suffering is that it's not as solid as we think. Like Jane was saying today about, you know, somebody saying, oh, I had a really bad year. You know, if you paint the whole year as bad, then that's what you're carrying around with you and you will not be able to see anything else. But actually, and I'm sure you have seen this for yourself, even in the most painful times, there are moments that you can lighten up. Or there are moments, maybe you see a a cute baby and you remember, oh, isn't that cute? And then you remember, oh, I'm supposed to be sad, you know? (laughs) Or you're touched by something beautiful or maybe you have a moment of gratitude And when you start seeing that your dukkha, your suffering, is not as solid as you think, that changes a lot because then you're not carrying around that opaque projection onto life. So starting to see those moments of well-being. And I would would just invite you to let go of any idea that you shouldn't allow moments of well-being when something awful happens to you. It's too overwhelming and we can sometimes feel guilty for allowing ourselves to feel good or feel that it's not right for us to feel good when there's so much sorrow or or suffering. This is not doing anybody a favor to really allow and rejuvenate and replenish the heart is something um, that you need and that um, we all need. We don't need for you to be um, purposely walking around in your, in your pain or sorrow. Of course, you are how you are, but don't feel you're doomed to it. In fact, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll share a quote uh, that I, I love from um, Howard Zinn, the, uh, the great historian who did not whitewash the American history, uh, who just called it like it is. Uh, and this is in response, I put this into sometimes when people say, awakening joy, there's so much sorrow and suffering in the world, how can I let myself feel joy? And it's a very legitimate uh, concern. This one guy said, it sounds like are we all just sitting around here singing kumbaya? Yeah. And I said, oh, it's the kumbaya factor. Okay. And this is what Howard Zinn says. He says, an optimist isn't necessarily a blithe, slightly sappy whistler in the dark of our time. To be hopeful in bad times is not just foolishly romantic. It's based on the fact that human history is a history not only of cruelty, 
but also of compassion, sacrifice, courage, and kindness. What we choose to emphasize in this complex history will determine our lives. If we, remember, if we see only the worst, it destroys our capacity to do something. But if we remember those times and places, and there are so many where people have behaved magnificently, this gives us energy to act, and at least the possibility of sending the spinning top of a world in a different direction. It's important that we remember and get to connect with all the beauty in life. Otherwise, it's too painful. So, to directly feel our suffering, our pain, our difficulties, to not see it as solid and to see that there are moments of well-being right in the middle of them, to be here in the present because refuge is right here in the present. It's our mind that topples forward with worry or fear or saying, oh, it's only gonna get worse. There's no way that you can find refuge in that because the mind will create the most scary scenarios. But there's refuge just in this moment. Oh, this moment is workable. What am I learning from this? How can I grow in this? Just like all the things that people said here, and particularly when, Rob, you were saying about compassion, that suffering is the doorway to compassion. Because then you see, oh, I'm not alone in this. This is part of life. And when you can open up to your own sorrow and suffering, when you see somebody else going through theirs, you feel a connection with them. Pema Chodron has this uh, wonderful teaching. She says, mm, when we see our own suffering and there's awareness there, instead of getting tuned into how terrible things are, she says, take delight in that which sees the dukkha. Take delight, that is, appreciate that there's an awareness that knows, oh, this is suffering. And be the awareness and realize, oh, there's some consciousness that I'm bringing here. I'm not just drowning in my, uh, in my sorrow. There's an awareness. Oh, what, how can I grow in this? Whereas Joseph Goldstein says, the not seeing of dukkha is dukkha. When you don't realize there is suffering, then that's, you don't realize that you are completely embroiled in your suffering and drowning in your suffering. That's even more dukkha. But to see, oh, here's dukkha, here's sorrow now. And to know that this passes just like everything else. To simply say, oh, it's like this. This is how life is right now. How can I meet it with clarity and wisdom? Mm. So I'll, I'll close with a, a poem that points to this. This is called The Unbroken by uh, a woman named Rashani. She says, there is a brokenness out of which comes the unbroken. A shatteredness out of which blooms the unshatterable. There is a sorrow beyond all grief which leads to joy. And a fragility out of whose depths emerges strength. There is a hollow space too vast for words through which we pass with each loss, out of whose darkness we are sanctioned into being. 
there is a cry deeper than all sound whose serrated edges cut the heart as we break open to the place inside that is unbreakable and whole while learning to sing. So let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.